In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So today is almost like part two of last week, although it's going to be a little different. We're going to continue with history and, and theology and what we could take from um, the, the course of the, the past and how Christianity developed. But we're going to focus a little bit more on the denominations that started to branch off, and more specifically some heresies uh, that, that you'll see uh, much more prominent nowadays. All right, so you can kind of look at this as comparative theology. All right, so that'll be the basic theme of our day today, comparative theology. So before we get into all of the, the information, I wanted to share good reference a good resource for you guys, which is Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy. So it's up there. You guys could write down the title. It's a very good reference for you guys to look at if you care to know more about the differences that other denominations out there um, may have with Orthodoxy and other faiths altogether. So that's a very good um, reference from a perspective of an Orthodox author. All right, so as we get into this topic... We first just want to ask why. Why are we going to talk about the course of history? Why are we going to talk about all of the branches that broke off and the different denominations, different religions altogether? Like, what's, what's the purpose, right? So Bede, who is a, a father from the Western Church, says, If history records good things of good men, the thoughtful hearer is encouraged to imitate what is good. Or if it records evil of wicked men, the good religious listener or reader is encouraged to avoid all that is sinful and perverse and to follow what he knows to be good and pleasing to God. Alright, so this is basically the purpose that we could look back and imitate the good, avoid the bad. Right, because you're going to see throughout history, uh, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad. And... We could take so much of what happened and and understand a lot more about our personal life and how we ought to live in a practical sense from looking back at the progression of Christianity throughout throughout history. So as we get into the different denominations and religions that we'll see start to transpire throughout history, you're, you're going to wonder what the real differences are as, as something new pops up the very first question on your mind is going to be, like, what's the real difference, right? So, the best way I could think of it is if you look at a dollar bill and you're, you're assessing it, you're analyzing it to see whether it's real or fake, you, you can only determine the truth if and only if you know what a real dollar bill looks like, right? So... If I just give you a dollar bill and you're not from America, you've never handled dollar bills, you're not going to know. And for the common citizen who doesn't really study the dollar, the, the, the common citizen that's not going to like diagnose every single part of it, isn't going to know all the details and is not going to notice where something is a little off or not. Like, you know, some counterfeit bills look almost like the real thing. Right? But somebody who's trained, their eye is trained in the real thing and, and can identify every little detail, 
can tell you this is a fake right away. Okay. So what we want to do is focus on the real thing. Because the only way you can tell if something is fake is not to study all of the errors that may occur in a dollar bill. Because those are endless. You're going to go and look at what one counterfeit bill looks like and what another counterfeit bill looks like. You're going to just waste your time. Okay, what you want to know is study the real thing. And hopefully that's what we've been doing throughout this course. We study the real thing. That way, whenever something a little strange pops up, you could easily recognize it. All right. So the purpose of our discussion today is not to dwell on the, the, the counterfeit religions and the, the, the differences or, or, or even to point out where the, the similarities may be. But the purpose is for us to just expose the facts of those differences. You're going you're gonna to see throughout our course today that we're going to be talking about some strange things about other denominations. And it's going to sound like, okay, we're just bashing on every difference that's out there. Like we're going to say, this is different than us, this is different than us. And from an external perspective, it just looks like we're talking down on all of these differences. But that's certainly not the purpose. Okay, The purpose is just to speak the truth, look at historical evidence, look at the facts and say, this is different than what we believe and this is why. All right. So this is, this is a historical journey about events and facts, not just my opinion about what this religion really is and why I don't like that religion or why I don't like this denomination or that denomination. We're just going to go through facts and then we can learn about that and grow with our own faith. So I thought it would be a good idea to throw this map out here as we start to get into the historical progression of what happens within Christianity. Because we talk about the Greek East and the Roman West a lot. And it might not make a whole lot of sense until you could really put a whole picture out there and understand geographically what's going on. Alright, so here you have the, the five C's. Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome. Okay? These four, predominantly like the Greek side. Okay? The Greek East. Here is the Latin side. The, the, the West is the Latin side, and that's where you have Rome. Alright? So, just to give you an idea of what's going on between those two different sides, because there's going to be a few clashes here and there, and gives you a better idea of what's going on if you could understand the geographical context as well. Okay, so up until last week, we didn't have any real schisms, right? We talked about the three councils, the Council of Nicaea, and Constantinople, and Ephesus, right? And then there were some heresies that were excommunicated, some of them are still lingering until today, like Arianism, Macedonianism. We said th those heresies uh, are, can be found in Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. Right? But for the most part, there wasn't any real schism where uh, Christianity split up. Okay, so we're going to get into the first real schism where there is a real break within Christianity. And that comes in in the Council of Chalcedon. 
So as we're accustomed to, we'll go to the historical overview just to get a context of what's going on, what's preceding these events. So I want you to think of this man, Eurykes, a monk, a very simple monk. He's a holy man, but he's simple in his, his knowledge, his understanding. He, he's not a scholar or a theologian. And he confused his theological understanding of who Christ is. And instead of understanding Christ as holy man and holy God, holy like W-H, not H, so completely God, completely man, he thought of Christ as the divinity swallowing up the humanity because the divinity is so far superior to the humanity in his eyes that it consumed the humanity in Christ. Okay, so to him, he looked at Christ not as having two distinct natures that are united as one, but as one nature. And, and that's where you'll get the word monophysite. Mono meaning one, physite meaning nature. Okay, so in his understanding, he thought that Christ was one nature, and that the humanity consumed the divinity in that sense. He, the, the example he uses like as a drop of water in the ocean. Okay? So, this is what was confessed in 448 AD in a synod called the Home Synod. So, the Bishop of Alexandria at this time, Bishop Dioscorus, heard of this simple monk who is teaching wrong theology. And so he called them over in 449 AD and there was a local council in Ephesus and Dioscorus like, took him under his wings and he says, listen buddy, this is totally off. <laughs> you need to correct that. This is the real Orthodox faith that Christ is one person and the two natures are not confused. Like they are one but they remain distinct and the humanity is not consumed in the divinity. And so the, the, the history here is a little tricky because there's a lot of controversy, controversy of what really happened and how Eutyches really responded. But the, the historical evidence points more so to Eutyches accepting this and agreeing. And he says, okay, I'll fix it. All right? So everything is cool, right? But at this time, Pope Leo wasn't happy with Bishop Dioscorus bringing Eutyches, who was excommunicated for teaching this heresy, back into the faith. He basically reinstituted, reinstated Eutyches. And to Pope Leo... He thought that he's basically reinstating a heretic, right? So Leo and Discourse started getting into it, and there was a little bit of tension between the the Bishop of Alexandria and the the Pope, the Bishop of, of Rome. And Leo said, Whatever happened in that council in four forty nine was like a council of robbers. This is total nonsense. There's no way that you could reinstate this heretic because he distorted what we understand about Christology. Okay, and in this case, Leo responded with the tome. 
The tome is basically an article of Leo's theological understanding of Christology. Okay? So he wanted to clarify the Christian dogma, and he did so with the tome. What this actually did, though, is it complicated the faith even more. And there are some things in the tome, I don't, we don't have time to get into it, although it would be a, a wonderful tangent to get into sometime. But he confused the faith a little. There's something called the communicatio idiomatum, which is a little strange. But without getting into all of that, these scores didn't like it. For, and for good reason, okay? So this added to the tension, right? Now, there wasn't a whole lot done because uh, the, 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 the emperor didn't make much of it. There wasn't a local, uh, an ecumenical council called at that time. But when, when the emperor died, the following emperor, which was Marcion, he was enthroned in 451. He wanted to reconcile both sides. And so he called for an ecumenical council so that they could settle this dispute. Okay? So in 451, you have the, the fourth council, but we don't recognize it. We don't call it an ecumenical council from our end because... You'll see, like a little spoiler alert, but you'll see that we get excommunicated here. Okay? Because Leo and Dioscorus aren't getting along. Right? So anyways, the Council of Chalcedon, the subjects that were really on trial, was this Monophysite doctrine. And and like we said, it is a heresy. Right? And... We can't say that Christ is one nature in the sense of the, hum- the humanity being swallowed up in the divinity. But if we do say He is one nature in the sense of one composite, one that is out of two, one that is from two natures being united as one, then it's completely accurate. But the better term for that is Miaphysite, not Monophysite. So Mia is one, but it's a one that denotes two components as one composite. Does that make sense? So if we understand monophysite as it truly means the divinity consuming the humanity, then it is absolutely a heresy. All right? So anyways, this was the subject on trial. Dioscorus himself was a subject on trial just because there was all this political tension. Okay? And so... Dioscorus was called to attend the, the council on three different occasions and he just didn't, didn't come because he knew, he knew what was coming. So he didn't attend, he refused. Because he knew if he comes, he's going to get excommunicated because of this mess that happened with Eurykes before. He, he wasn't you know, sitting well with Leo. And so all this was stirring up and he said, if I'm going to come, I'm going to get excommunicated. There's no point, right? So, he gets deposed or excommunicated. The Monophysite doctrine is rejected as we said it is a heresy. And that begins the tension between the Church of Alexandria and the rest of Christendom. Now remember, there are five C's, right? There was Alexandria, 
there was Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and, and Rome, if you look at it in like a counterclockwise fashion. Now, that's only one-fifth of the whole body. So, we really were the minority, even though Alexandria was like a big hub of theology and it was a fortress in the development of like Christian doctrine. So it was a major component of Christianity, but population-wise, it really was a minority. So we were just like the little guys that got kicked out of the pack. Okay? Now, this wasn't like the final blow, but it was really more so like the, the initial hit that, that caused the schism. Okay? You'll see that it's not until about like the 7th, 8th century, whenever the rise of Islam comes into the picture where there's like a real geographical isolation. And because of that oppression and the geographical isolation, we basically are further excluded out of the rest of the pack. That makes sense? That's like the final blow. That's where it becomes permanent. Okay, so the aftermath, there's this gradual division. Like I said, it's much more so fixed by the 7th century due to the geographical isolation of the Islamic invasion. And then you'll have basically two sides, okay? The majority, in regards to population at least, is the Eastern Orthodox, and the minority, which was us, is the Oriental Orthodox, okay? So here you go, here's the secret, all this talk that you hear about Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, this is what it all comes down to, okay? So the Eastern Orthodox Church, or the Chalcedonian Church, the ones that confess or recognize this council, are the British, Serbian, Finland, Russian, Ukrainian, Bulgarian, Romanian, Antiochian, and Greek church. And the Oriental church are the non-Chalcedonians, the ones that do not recognize this council because obviously this wasn't something that, that we accept. We, we were called heretics, so we don't agree with that. Okay? This side is the Coptic, Syrian, Armenian, Ethiopian, Eritrean, and Malankara, or, or the Indian church. Okay? And again, it's all like semantics about, you know, you say Jesus is two natures in one person, or one person in two natures, and like you're saying the same thing in a different way, and a lot of politics, and just nonsense that caused this schism. All right? And don't forget, too, it's basically like East and West talking in different languages. So you have Latin theology, Greek theology, and there's a lot of confusion among them regarding the terminology. All right. So we're going to brush through the other three councils that follow, although we don't really recognize them because, remember, we're basically like out of the pack. But within the rest of Christendom, there, there are three other councils that continue to happen until you get into the Great Schism whenever the Roman Catholic Church breaks off from the Eastern Orthodox. That, that'll be in 1054, okay? but we'll get into that in a bit. So the next council that happened within the Eastern Orthodox Church was the Council of Constantinople II, which is in 553 AD. It, it rejected Theodoret. Abyss of, 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 of Edessa and Theodore of Mapsuesta's theology. And these guys were basically Nestorian guys. 
they they taught that Jesus was like these two sons that came together, remember? So they rejected this again and they anathematized originism. Remember, originism was uh, basically some heresies that were extrapolated from origin's teaching, although they are a bit controversial. Um, but once again, they're the subordination of the sun, the pre-existence of souls, and universal salvation. So the church came and they said, all of this stuff is nonsense. Okay. So they said, these guys that taught Nestorian teachings, they're excommunicated, and anybody who believes in the subordination of the sun, the pre-existence of souls, or universal salvation is also rejected. Okay? So, the next one is in 680 AD, which is the third council of Constantinople. Okay? So, there was... The second one was in Constantinople, remember? And then the fifth one is in Constantinople. The sixth one is in Constantinople. So, you have three. Okay? And then the last one, which is really more significant than these ones, will be in Nicaea. Okay, so they rejected a heresy called Monothelitism. So, the Monothelite doctrine is very tricky. It, it literally means one will. Okay, one will. Interestingly, the, the council was a product of everyone's efforts to unite the, the, the Monophysite side and the, the other side. Okay, so it was, it was an effort to bring both sides together. So they said, well, maybe we, we disagree on the one nature thing, like whether you put it this way or that way, but let's come and just agree that Christ has one will. Okay, that way we can just... Forget about what happened and we can come together and, and unite as one body. Okay? So the issue here is that the Chalcedonian side, which was much more so concerned with stressing the distinction of the two natures. Remember, these guys were offended by what Eutyches was saying, right? So every time they would hear one, they thought, okay, the divinity swallowing up to humanity, it doesn't make sense. Monophysite, that's wrong, right? So... Every time they would hear one, it didn't sit well with them because they wanted to emphasize the two natures being distinct and not confused. And the other side, which was the Oriental side, wanted to stress that Christ isn't Nestorian, like he wasn't two different people, right? So they wanted to emphasize one. Every time they would hear two, it didn't sit well with them. And so you see both sides wanted to stress the other side of the truth. Okay, but both are very credible, important parts of the truth. That Christ has two distinct natures, but they're both not separate. They're both one, and they function as one. And it's not like there's this dichotomy within Christ. And here, what this did is just further amplify the tension. Because instead of fighting about two natures or one nature, they're fighting about two wills or one will. Okay, So it was the exact same fight, but with a different topic. Okay, so the, the Chalcedonian side was saying, no, there are two wills because there's a humanity and a divinity. And then the non-Chalcedonian side is saying, no, you can't separate the humanity and the divinity. They're both united as one will. So 
you see it just further amplified the situation and exacerbated the tension and it, like really stressed this division all right so you get into the the seventh council within the eastern orthodox church which is much more so a like a significant event in the history of christianity as a whole and so this is important for us to recognize whether Chalcedonian or non-Chalcedonian. All right. In 787 AD, the council that was held at this time rejected iconoclasms. So iconoclasm is basically this doctrine that pushed for the destruction of all icons because it presumed icons were a source of idolatry. You have icons in the church, so it implies you're worshipping them, and obviously you can't worship anyone but God, and so the, the, the emperor at 726, Emperor Leo, proposed this um, iconoclastic movement where he wanted to destroy all the icons. This initiated this... Uh, this movement against the church and there were so many icons that were burned and destroyed within this century so many we lost so many icons i can't i can't tell you the exact number according to like historical data but it, it was a de devastating amount of icons that were lost but the church fought against this uh, ideology because icons have a place within the church. We don't worship them, but the, they they direct us to God. They serve as symbols. They serve as meaningful stories. You know, we don't even say you paint an icon. We say you write an icon because you write a story. You see within the icon, something is is illustrated. It's expressed. And you see the life of the saint or whatever in that icon. So, one monumental figure that I want to bring our attention to, and he's going to be critical for the fight against iconoclasms and the fight against Islam, is St. John of Damascus. Okay, so St. John Damascene. So I'll just throw out a quote by him, and it'll give you a good perspective of how the church fought this iconoclastic movement. All right. So he says, I do not worship matter, I worship the God of matter, who became matter for my sake and deigned to inhabit matter, who accomplished my salvation through matter. I'll not cease from honoring that matter which works for my salvation. I venerate it, though not as God. Alright. So, again, this is a physical object, but we're not venerating it like we're we're worshiping something physical god is unseen god is invisible but through his incarnation he made himself manifest and we know that all physical matter was created to be good and he assumed that matter he assumed a physical body so it would be absurd for us to bring whatever is physical to an inferior level because all matter is good. God assumed that matter. And it was by Him becoming matter that He saved all of us who are also matter, physical beings. Alright? So, this is like the quintessential phrase or quote that 
is at the forefront of the church's defense against iconoclasm. All right, so that concludes the councils that we wanted to discuss. Now we'll get into the the the, the real opponents of the church, and and the first real opponent that comes into the picture is Islam. All right, so the rise of Islam was basically from 622 A.D. whenever Muhammad had this vision. All right, and it literally means to surrender. Or submit. It's obvious in Arabic, but if you don't speak Arabic, you don't really, you don't get it as clearly. Okay, but Islam, like to sallim, right? To surrender or submit. So, anyways, this, for us to understand this, we gotta realize that this is a branch or an offshoot from Christianity, and there's a lot of evidence to point to Muhammad coming from a Christian family. He himself might have grown up as a Christian, which is a little debatable, but he definitely came from a Christian family. And you'll see that he has a lot of issues with Christianity, and he's basically like building on it to to imply this is now the fulfillment of the Christian faith. So he looked at Islam... In relation to Christianity, the same way as a Christian would look at Christianity in relation to Judaism. Okay, so he thought like, I'm bringing you now into the new covenant, which is Allah and Islam and this path of surrender. Right? And, and you'll get an idea of how he convoluted so many of the Christian teachings. All right, so at this time, all of that map that I showed you earlier, was Christian. So the predominant religion was Christianity. Like there was no such thing as Arabic in Egypt. Okay, it was all Coptic. All right, so he came in and you'll see it like, turned the whole world around. So St. John, remember, is, is a pivotal figure in the defense against iconoclasm and now against Islam. He's, he's, he's talking about the holes in Islam and he's going to point to some, some issues with Muhammad. He says, but the Christ himself was not crucified, Muhammad says. The Christ himself was not crucified, Muhammad says. Nor did he die, for God out of his love for him took him to himself into heaven. All right? So now he's pointing to Muhammad's claim that the father took his son up to heaven before he died. So Islam doesn't confess that Christ truly died on the cross. He continues to say, There is also the superstition of the Ishmaelites, which to this day prevails and keeps people in error, being a forerunner of the Antichrist. So he's even pointing to Muhammad and this religion as a heresy so big as to name Muhammad an antichrist, right? So, like, where where did this Islam and and the Quran and this faith all really come from? You look at the Quran, and I call it a dreamy revelation. Why? Because it literally came to Muhammad in a dream. So he was dreaming one day, and then this Quran just like 
came straight to him. Right? Like a revelation from God. And the, the, the Muslims believe that God himself dictated the Quran, which is totally different than the Christian understanding of the scriptures. Christian understanding of the scriptures is that the Bible is inspired, written by men, but inspired by God through his Holy Spirit, who put those words on paper. But for Islam, it just was written by God's own hand. So, St. John Damascus again says, Muhammad says this, that when the Christ had ascended into heaven, God asked him, O Jesus, did you say, I'm the Son of God and God? And Jesus, he says, answered, Be merciful to me, my Lord. You know that I do not say this and that I did not scorn to be your servant. But sinful men have written that I made this statement and they have lied about me and have fallen in error. Okay, so he's recording this sort of dialogue that Jesus has with his father. And the father is asking him, did you really say that you're God? And then he comes and responds saying, you know I didn't say this. People just convoluted my words and they wrote about me in error. And God answered and said to him, I know that you did not say this word. And here's the reference for it in the surah chapter 5. There are many other extraordinary and quite ridiculous things in this book which he boasts was sent down to him from God. So this is what St. John Damascus is saying about this revelation that Muhammad received. Again, this is not intended to be like an Islam bash or anything. I just want to point out the fact and where everything came from. So Muhammad himself, he's the founder of this this branch or, or, or this heresy that broke away from Christianity. So to get a better idea of this faith, we got to go to the person that established it. And, and I think there's nothing safer than that. Whenever you look at Christianity, forget about looking at Christians because you're going to get a misconception sometimes. There are good and bad examples of Christianity within Christians. So I'm not judging Islam based on what a couple of guys did flying a plane in September 11th in 2011. I'm not basing this based on what other people preach or say or whatever. The same way I, I could look at the Crusades and you criticize Christianity and see what happened, right? So forget about the followers because there are frail and earthly, weak and misguided men in every faith, all right? So we got to just lay that as the foundation and go back to the founder, the foundation itself. If you want to understand Christianity, we look to Christ. That's the rock. That's what the faith is all about. Look at Islam. Let's look at Muhammad a little closer. So he was born in 570 and died in 632 AD. And these are some facts that, that we can extrapolate from what we have historical records about his life. All right, so I'll just mention to you a few quotes. I'll, ex- I'll expel the Jews. This is him, uh, his own words. I'll expel the Jews and Christians from the Aber- Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslims. After the Jews, Koraiza resisted Muhammad. So he's now here recalling an event where he, he wanted to overthrow a group of Jews. Okay, so in this specific event, the Jews resisted. Okay, so 
he besieged them for 25 nights until they were sore until they were sore pressed and God cast terror into their hearts then he Muhammad sent for them and struck off their heads in those trenches as they were brought out to him in batches there were 600 or 700 in, in all though some put the figure as high as 800 or 900 so this is from Ibn Shaq, uh, page 464 this verse of the Quran, and I'm not going to go through every single reference because there's just too many, but they're up there for you. This verse from, of the Quran along with, with others granted Muslims the right to have sex with their female captives and slave girls, even those who are still married or who are going to be sold or traded. And we have record of his life even uh, having been married to like a seven-year-old girl. And he, he did a, a lot of scandalous things. He was a murderer. He was a rapist. He was a violent man. He pushed for uh, this this violent conquest and, and aggressive behavior. So this was the foundation of Islam, and and there there is absolutely nothing we can uh, sugarcoat about it. Okay, and again, I wouldn't say this of like ninety nine percent of Muslims because I don't see Muslims really living out what Muhammad did and his life in that extreme sense. But again, it could be that they're not really living up to that calling. I don't know. So from the Surah chapter 9, uh, 29, it says, Fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor in the latter day, nor do they prohibit what Allah and His Apostle have prohibited nor follow the religion of truth out of those who have been given the book until they pay the tax in acknowledgement of superiority and they're in a state of subjection. All right, so this is the, the commandment of, of this, this imposed law, the, the tax that they would uh, impose on everybody if uh, they do not commit to Islam. Okay, so we can just summarize Islam into five pillars or components that the faith really stresses. So I'll quickly just run through them. And these come from, uh, their scriptures are basically like three different bodies of scripture, which can be summarized as the Sunnah. It makes the Quran, Hadith, and the Ijma. The Hadith and Ijma more so like like articles explaining the, the Quran. Okay, so in Arabic, you can extrapolate what each of these pillars mean uh, automatically but I'll explain it a little more as well so the first one is shahada so shahada you witness right so the confession I testify that there is no God but God and I testify that Muhammad is the prophet of God okay I say this in my mind right now and <laughs> like I hear the mosques shouting this out while we're in Egypt but if you've lived in Egypt you know okay the second one is salah uh, salah which is the ritual prayer performed five times daily facing Mecca. Okay, so this is their salah or prayers. The second is zakat, which is almsgiving. Okay, that's the third pillar. The fourth is saum, just fasting. Again, very easy to, to realize with the Arabic. So their fast is primarily the, the fast of Ramadan. And it's strange because they fast while the sun is up. 
and it's completely abstinent. Like they don't eat, drink, or anything. But almost every Muslim would wake up at like five in the morning, right before the sun comes up, so that they could have breakfast and fill up, you know. And then they go to sleep, and then when the sun comes comes down at the sunset, like they wake up a couple hours before that, so that they can prepare their meals and then they feast and there's no moderation after that the fasting is really just during the the daytime okay and you you know you could look at our life and we could be guilty of that sometimes too but again this is basically their custom and the fifth is hajj which is a one-time pilgrimage to mecca for those who can afford to make that trip all right so i don't want to dwell much more on islam just because it's not fun. <laughs> but if you want to have um, more sources, uh, I'll, point to you, uh, I'll point you to some more resources that um, you, can, you can grab for yourself. I would point you to Robert Spencer, who's a wonderful author, that's written a few things. Um, one book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Islam. The second is The Truth About Muhammad, the founder of the world's most intolerable, intolerant religion. And the third is the complete infidel's guide to the Quran. Okay, so again, what's the purpose of all of this? It's not really to bash on Islam. And it's not even to point out the differences and what's strange about it. The point is for us to understand how this impacts our faith. Because at the end of the day... The real question is, what's it have to do with me? Right? Like, how does it affect me? And it clearly took a big hit, a big toll on Christianity. So, within a hundred years of the rise of Islam, within a hundred years, Muslims conquered much of the ancient Christian world, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, and Spain. So, this was an aggressively rising religion that oppressed the Middle East, that whole area. And and by the 15th century, the Turks seized the entire Byzantine Empire. It's important to understand this because this is going to uh, add to the tension in that area. So the geographical and political isolation within the Middle East and the rest of Christendom that was affected by the conquest and the invasion of, of Islam resulted in seclusion and oppression by Islam. And then they seized all of these holy places, the Holy Land, Jerusalem, and the, the area where the Holy Family traveled. So a lot of uh, holy Christian places that were now under Islamic possession. So you got to keep this in mind because... That's going to set the stage for what later will happen in the 11th century with the Crusades. Okay, because the Christians aren't going to be happy with this and they're going to want to retaliate. Right, but if you don't understand what happened with Islam, then the Crusades make no sense. And then how the Crusades affected the future and how it exacerbated the tension between the East and the West will make no sense as well. But now you're starting to get an idea of like how Christianity is developing. All right, so we'll quick, 
quick look literally recap and then we'll go into a break you had from the council of chalcedon the first little schism where the oriental church kind of breaks off and then about 75-80% of Christianity is within the body of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And from there, there are a few more councils, right? And then at the 7th, 8th century, as um, in the 8th century, rather, in 722 AD, you have the rise of Islam, and that puts a lot of stress within Christianity, and it secludes that area that's within the Middle East, and the, more specifically, the Church of Alexandria. Um, and, and Jerusalem and those holy places as well so that they're much more uh, secluded from the rest of Christendom and that's what's going to add a little bit more attention within the, um, the, the body of the church. Okay, So take a break and then we'll come back. We'll get into uh, the Great Schism and then um, take a look at how the Catholic Church breaks off and then how the Protestant Church breaks off from that as well. Yeah. So we'll be back in one minute. So we're going to get into the Great Schism, where uh, the first real major schism comes in. I, I, I wouldn't really classify the schism within um, the Eastern and Oriental Orthodox Church as something major, because it didn't really split Christianity as a whole, okay? Because it was really much more so like a little branch coming off. Within the Great Schism, you'll see like a much more major schism and and at this point everything that's going to happen is going on within the eastern orthodox church all right so if you kind of look at a progression within the timeline from here where christ and the disciples are you go and you have the council of chalcedon in 451 and then the oriental orthodox church is just off and they continue straight on their own for the rest of history. And the Eastern Orthodox Church breaks off, and in 1054 you have the Great Schism, and then the Roman Catholic, and then the Eastern Orthodox Church kind of split almost, although there is probably a little bit more within the body of the Roman Catholic Church. And then from the Roman Catholic Church you have the Protestant Schism from the Protestant Reformation in 1517, and then there's just like a whole explosion of denominations that happen from that schism. Okay, But I want you to look at our church as just like chilling. We're doing our own thing. We're not going anywhere. And we were oppressed and there was a lot of issues from what Islam did for us. And it was a lot of persecutions. It wiped out our language. It wiped out a lot of stuff, right? But there was a blessing in disguise in that it really preserved our faith. We didn't really... Uh, elaborate and complicate our theology or anything. We're just simply on our own from that point on. So the historical overview is that before the Great Schism in 1054, there started to be some tension between Constantinople and and Rome, or generally speaking within the East and the West. And one of the biggest reasons was that there was this idea of the filioque that started to creep into the picture. And we can trace this as far back as like the 4th or 5th century. And most of the historical data tell us that the filioque started to come into the picture from Spain. 
Okay, so the filioque literally means and the sun. It's the Greek word for and the sun. So literally this is just a phrase for that for that word and the sun. Now, if you remember in the first ecumenical council the church was fighting against the Arian heresy, right? The church was defending the faith against this guy that said Jesus Christ isn't God. So there were some Arians that started to move throughout the church and they settled within the West and they came into Spain. And the people fighting against this heresy at this time wanted to emphasize the divinity of Christ. So in doing so, they took it to an extreme where they elevated Christ to share the same role as the Father. They wanted to say that He's equal with the Father, but we know that the Father, the, the first person of the Trinity, is the cause, He's the source. Right? And we don't confuse that with the Son, we don't confuse that with the Spirit. You know, the second person of the Trinity, Christ, is the incarnate Logos. He's the one that became flesh. Even though the Father and Son are one and they're equal, we don't say the Father took flesh. That's another heresy. We don't say that the Father was crucified. That's another heresy. It's called Petri Passions, the Father suffering. Because the Father didn't assume our nature, even though they are one. So what happened here is that in an effort to protect the divinity of Christ, people in Spain said that the Spirit, just as He proceeds from the Father, proceeds from the Son as well. That makes sense? But we know that the Spirit proceeds from the Father alone. And that's why Christ ascends and He's the agent of God who takes the Spirit from the cause, the source, the Father, in order to send Him to humanity. And we know that this is a distinct role for the Father. Okay? So that's really as simple as I could put it. This word and the Son started to creep into the, the creed. You know the part where we say, yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord, the life giver, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. But right after who proceeds from the Father, they inserted filioque and the Son. They proceeds from the Father and the Son because they wanted, it was an innocent attempt. They wanted to elevate the divinity of Christ to say, He's equal with the Father. But you can't confuse roles. Okay, because then if the Son does what the Father does, then you belittle the Father. And then if the Father can proceed the Spirit and the Son can proceed the Spirit, why can't the Spirit proceed someone else too? Like, it distorts what we understand about the Trinity. Okay? So there was a lot of political tension. And then this, this tension developed between a couple of distinct figures, which was Nicholas, the Pope of Rome, and... Photius, which was the, the Pope of Constantinople. Alright? So, in, in Constantinople, the rest of the Greek East were saying, the, this filioque stuff is nonsense, it's a heresy. But it started to creep into the theology of the West. Right? Remember, it came from Spain, and like Augustine, Ambrose, they started to teach this a little bit, and this is where you, you started to f- see it kind of enter into the, the theology of the West. 
Okay, so they were going back and forth. This is a lot of tension. They like excommunicated each other, but you know, things things started to settle down after this schism between Phocius and Nicolaitis, and it was pretty calm and cool for a few years. Okay, until in um, in 1054. Um, there were three legates from the Roman Pope and they were sent with a message to, to, to Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. Okay, the church, Hagia Sophia, one of the most popular churches in Christianity. And they had this message to excommunicate the patriarch of Constantinople, which was Michael Sorelius. So, at this point, one of the deacons saw what was transpiring. He ran after the, the guys, and he said, you know, don't do this. And he kind of looked back, and he said, let God, God be the judge. And they just said, like, you know, it is what it is. We've done what we've done. It's over. Okay? But Rome was just frustrated with whatever Constantinople was doing, and, and it just wanted to kind of put an end to it. Okay? So this is on July 16th, 1054. So what were the list of accusations that, that you know, these guys were delivering? That's the first thing we got to be wondering. So let's take a look at what these accusations were. So we can say um, from from the top of the list, it says that they they were accused of the absurdity of the Greek claim to be the true church. Again, Rome thought of itself to be superior to the other seas. So they accused Constantinople of the absurdity of the Greek claim to be the true church alone dispensing baptism and offering the Eucharistic sacrifice and the use of the ti- excuse me of the title ecumenical patriarch by the patriarch of Constantinople treating latins as heretics and practicing rebaptism allowing clerical marriage deleting the filioque from the creed we'll get into this a little bit later too, but obviously it wasn't deleted. It was never there, right? Not allowing baptism of infants before the eighth day. Forbidding communion to menstruating women and repelling from the Eucharist clean-shaven Latins. So in the Latin West, it was their custom that priests would be clean-shaven, like they wouldn't have beards. And you see that now too, like they either have like a goatee or nothing. Or just like a very, very light beard. But I mean, some of it is trivial. Some of it is true. Some of it is totally false. Right? So you just have a whole list and like you could, you know, diagnose each accusation and see whether it's right or whether it's wrong. And even if it's right, does it really matter? You know? So there's a lot to this list. So without any like further ado, without, you know, getting into all the details of the schism... I want to talk about what the Catholic Church believes in now, okay? Because 
regardless of how everything transpired, we're going to get into a lot of history and you know finer details of the matter which don't really concern us right now. So at the end of the day, the Catholic Church split off from the Eastern Orthodox Church, or however you want to call it, one side excommunicated the other, and now they continued on their course of, of customs and their style of worship and their mindset within the church, their own structure and everything. Okay. Before we get into all the differences and some of the issues that were you know, part of this whole schism, personally speaking, I love the Catholic Church. And one of the biggest figures that has like, a big influence on my, my life, personally speaking, is Mother Teresa. Okay? So within the Catholic Church, you'll see that there are many wonderful saints. Okay, so just keep that in mind, although we're going to get into some issues that may, you know, kind of, uh, may not sit well with you, okay? Anyway, so for starters, we have ecclesiology. So the ecclesiology, ecclesia is the assembly or the church. So their ecclesiastical structure started to develop and started to uh, like increase in structure and they started to teach something called um, the infallibility of the Pope or the supremacy of the Pope, papal supremacy. And they believed that the Roman Pope was superior to... The, yeah, the Rome. So, yeah. so the, the, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sure. Sorry. And uh, the, who became... Catholics, the, the Rome, uh, because yeah. you said the Eastern, it's not the whole Eastern. Yes, right, Church. Rome. Rome only. Yes. And the rest are, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so you have something that developed called papal supremacy and, or, and infallibility. You're two little different. Supremacy is basically that the patriarch or the Pope of Rome, by the way, this, this term Pope never even existed prior to that time. Okay. Uh, within the first few centuries, it was just patriarch. Everyone's a patriarch. Everyone's a bishop. Okay. Then with Rome, there was this idea that the Pope of Rome would preside over all of Christendom as a whole. So, so that if, if there are issues, they would kind of have to come back to get cleared with Rome. So they had this sense of like jurisprudence or jurisdiction, jurisdiction over the rest of the other seas. So that's the idea of supremacy. And infallibility is basically to say that the Pope cannot mistake, cannot be mistaken in his theological teachings, okay, or in his doctrines, cannot make a mistake. But you see that the, the, they themselves have contradicted their, their teachings in the past. Actually, in, in the ninth century, Pope Leo III published um, on two silver uh, tablets, the creed, and, and put it in, in the church of St. Peter's Basilica. And on the creed, the filioque was not included. And he, he rejected it. Also in the ninth century, Pope John VIII rejected the filioque. Okay, so these are Roman popes, and they're saying filioque is a heresy. It's, it's wrong. And then here you have 
other people that came later and said they're fighting for the filioque. Does that make sense? So for for them to say there's an infallibility of the Pope, it's it's totally counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. It's self-contradictory. Anyways, so in their theology you had this issue of the filioque, which was probably the, the biggest theological issue that split up the East and the West. Okay? In in the Catholic Church, there's there's a sense of pessimism in in their anthropological understanding, where man is viewed as as a like a fallen being who 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 needs to to go through certain like legalistic steps to purify himself. So it it looked at man having to work more and there there wasn't this brighter picture of grace and, and, and God's love and mercy that really prevailed. Not that it was absent, but they really pointed much more so to the sinfulness of man's nature than the grace of God. Okay? And you keep these things in mind and you're going to understand the Protestant Reformation with no problem. Because the Protestants are going to fight for the exact opposite. Okay? And then one person strays to one extreme, another person strays to the opposite extreme. Okay? So one person, like the Catholics, really stressed the ecclesiastical structure and the uh, organization of the bishops and the Pope and the supremacy and this. The other side is going to go to the opposite extreme and say, forget the church, forget the priests, and forget the structure as a whole, forget all of those things. So everything starts to make sense when you see where it came from. Right? So theologically too, there is this understanding of um, penal substitution from Anselm of Catterbury. So he was um, he was a figure that taught that the wrath of God could could only be satisfied in 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 having punished the culprit for the crime. Okay, and so for Christ to take that punishment on our behalf, he satisfies the wrath of God because. Now, like justice is served, somebody that committed a crime is punished for what happened and the wrath of God is eliminated. Okay? So again, we don't recognize this idea of penal substitution. There is a sense of satisfactory and substitution in soteriology, but not to satisfy a wrathful God. Right? It is basically to take our corruption and to satisfy the debt that we could never have paid. And then also there's this idea of, of God's absolute transcendence. So God's absolute transcendence can, can be found uh, best from uh, Thomas Aquinas' writings, who, who, who gave God this title as the unmovable mover. So that alone kind of gives you this hint of like God being this distant, almost stoic sort of figure. And of course, it doesn't deny uh, God's love and his compassion. But for him, 
God was just so transcendent and, and that was the primary focus as opposed to God being the personal God that took on our nature, identified with our weaknesses, who's dwelling within us and can relate to us and identify with our struggles. All right. Some other issues that are not as significant, but you'll find this more so within the life of the church now, within their worship, they understand the Theotokos as a figure that is more responsible for uh, our salvation and, and co- cooperated with God in a different way than we understand her cooperation with God in our salvation. So she's elevated to say that she can also forgive sins. And so she is venerated at a higher degree. And again, you think of how the Protestant Reformation took that as a backlash and they say, forget her and all the saints altogether, <laughs> right? They have uh, this idea of purgatory where a person who hasn't uh, necessarily lived a good life but wasn't evil either will will pay the punishment for his sins after his death by being like refined in a fire and going through this purgatory sort of system so that they could be um, purified to to be in heaven they also believed in believe in the celibacy of priests and this is a whole other issue altogether because it, it totally takes away from the, the, the pastoral competence of the priest. But again, it puts a lot of stress on the, the, the clergy, and you'll see like a lot of issues that have happened. Um, again, every, every church has had issues. No, no church has had perfect leaders throughout all of history. But this is something that differs from the teachings of the church. Even you see St. Paul writing to Timothy, and he says that the bishop ought to be a good man married to one wife. So even in, in our tradition of a bishop, it's not necessarily from the monastic tradition. Okay, it's like a married man as well. So anyways, there's this legalistic development in spirituality that you see within the Catholic Church. Um, and you'll see the legalities within the sacraments. Like if you're if you're confessing a certain sin, depending on whether it's like a capital sin or you know whatever type of sin it is, you, you'll have penance for the, that degree of the sin and you'll, you'll pray a certain amount of Hail Marys or something like that. Um, and and there, there's this effort in trying to look at the sacraments more legalistically and the idea of transubstantiation within the Eucharist started to come into the picture where they wanted to identify how exactly the bread and the wine are converted into the body and the blood of Christ and this idea that the substance literally transforms. But whereas for the Orthodox Church, we leave that to mystery. We don't believe that if you don't fast, it's a sin. You know, fasting is a tool and we ought to fast. But if you don't fast, you're not committing a sin. You know, so there was this legalistic idea of the progression in spirituality and the way of life within within the church. Okay, again, not to take away from the the life of holiness that really uh, you know permeates within the saints of the Catholic Church, but those are some things uh, that that we see within the Catholic Church. So the indulgences were basically to to receive 
a specific favor for like participation from from the priests and, and church services and so on. So this will actually start to emanate a lot more in the Crusades because the the, the the Crusades were primarily filled, well, they were occupied, the armies were occupied by peasants more so than anybody else. And the peasants did so in order to receive indulgences, like favors from the Pope and pardon to receive forgiveness and things like that. Okay? So, that's a very good segue now to get into the Crusades. Crusades from the 11th century, basically from 1096 to 1291, we can identify the Crusades in a very simple way. They're just a series of religious wars initiated by the Roman Pope in an effort to retrieve possession of the Christian Holy Lands. So the Pope called a few quests, set it up for them to go and retrieve possession of like Jerusalem and the Holy Lands, everything that was taken from them by Islamic rulers. Okay, so that's that's what they are in a nutshell. So what was the real motive? These people are going; they're going on this wrong journey. It's almost like a pilgrimage, and they're 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 trying to retrieve this land that was essentially Christian. But what really drove them to go through? such an extent to do those things. So look at a quote from, from uh, the Christian history book by Walker. And he quotes this. He says that the crusader was at once pilgrim and soldier. Okay, again, a pilgrimage you're going for a spiritual journey and experience to experience that destination that, that, that you want to go to. But he was once a pilgrim and soldier bound by a solemn vow to visit the Holy Sepulchre in the ranks of an organized armed expedition. They thought they were doing something of the highest importance for their soul and for Christ. Okay? So they, they were at once pilgrims and soldiers. They were pilgrims in the sense of going through this expedition or this journey for a spiritual purpose to go to Jerusalem which is a land filled with with the, the the presence of God from his birth and it's a holy place that you want to go and take the blessings of that place but it's really a a journey they took as soldiers because they're going to war okay they're going to fight to take back their land not by like giving the, the the Muslims a gift and asking for it back, but they're going with swords on horses and it's it's a war. So we could say that there are four major crusades, like events or, or like specific journeys that the Pope sent out to retrieve the land that was possessed by Islam. Although in total... There are probably like eight or nine that you could really identify. But there are four major ones. I want to just dwell on the fourth one a little more. Uh, I don't want to get into detail of each one because they're repetitive and you know they just become um, 
more like finer details than anything else. But for our purposes, I think the fourth one serves a, a big uh, um, part in the, the, the tension that will develop within Christianity. So I want to emphasize um, the significance of that one a little bit more. Okay, so that one is from 1202 to 1204. It's definitely the most dramatic of all the Crusades. And, and this is why. Okay, so the Crusaders, they were sent again by the Roman Pope. And they're going through this journey, right? They're going from Rome, going all the way across the east and a little south. They're going to try to retrieve that holy land. And they're going through a lot of different areas throughout the way, right? Different areas that are in Islamic possession. And as they're going through, they're going through Constantinople as well. Okay, so he says here, the Crusaders dethroned Emperor Alexius III, who was the emperor at Constantinople at this time, and they captured Constantinople and in a three-day sack plundered its treasures. So, that's, you know, it's cool, whatever, like they go through and they, they, they basically take over Constantinople. So you might not think like, you know, much of any harm done there. But what happens is a Latin patriarch of Constantinople was appointed. And remember, at this time, it was the Greek East, the patriarch of Constantinople was not the Latin Pope. Okay. He was his own patriarch. But at this time, a Latin patriarch of Constantinople was appointed and the Greek church was made subject to the Pope. This Latin conquest was disastrous for the Eastern Empire, gravely weakening it and making it vulnerable to the advances of the Ottoman Turks in the middle of the 14th century. Because later on, because of this tension with the Christianity, it actually made the area even weaker and then the Ottoman Turks came in. The Turks are basically uh, a, a sort of uh, Islamic culture. They will come in, and because they're already having internal tension, they're going to easily take over that land again. Okay? So it also exacerbated the hatred between Greek and Latin Christians. So the, the, the Latins basically came in, and they enthroned their own patriarchs so that the people in Constantinople can be under the Latin Pope. Does that make sense? So it caused a lot of tension between them. Anyways, to make a long story short, this was really like the final blow that separated the East and the West. So that after all these wars and all this tension, the East and the West like really hated each other. <laughs> Constantinople did not like Rome, and Rome did not like Constantinople. So, what are the results? Viewed by the light of their original purpose, remember the purpose was to retrieve these lands, in light of that, the Crusaders, the Crusades were failures. Okay? In light of what the purpose really was, you can say this was an utter failure. They made no permanent conquest of the Holy Land. They did not retard the advance of Islam. Far from aiding the Eastern Empire, they hastened its disintegration. They also 
revealed the continuing inability of Latin Christians to understand Greek Christians and they hardened the schism between them. They fostered a harsh intolerance between Muslims and Christians. Don't forget too, Muslims are seeing Christians fight back and so they're going to resist even more. So on so many fronts, let's just add tension between everybody. Though they inhabited they, though they initiated in a spirit of high devotion and distinguished by innumerable acts of courage, their conduct was disgraced throughout by quarrels, divided motives, and low standards of personal conduct. Okay, so maybe, yeah, their, their, their conduct was initiated from a good place. They wanted to retrieve the, the land where, where Christ lived and, and all his, the, the holy land of Christianity. But at the end of the day, it caused more of a backlash than anything else. So, did anyone really benefit from this? In, in a strange sense, yes. And I think the only person that can walk away with any sort of benefit is probably the Pope. Okay? You might wonder why, but... We explain from another quote by Walker. He says the chief beneficiary of the Crusades was the medieval papacy, whose authority and prestige was greatly enhanced by these expeditions. The Crusades also marked an important stage in the theory and practice of indulgences and in the elaboration of the church's canon law in the West. So remember, like Sandra was asking about indulgences, the Pope only exercised more authority throughout every crusade that he sent out. So it further elevated him. Even though the, these were all failures at the end of the day, promising these indulgences and exercising his authority, it further elevated his position and his supremacy. Okay? So that's not necessarily what his purpose was. His purpose was to retrieve the Holy Land but he did at least benefit in that sense, although in the grand scheme of things, it really does make things worse for the whole picture. Okay, so with with that in mind, and you, you kind of see where the West is heading, Rome and the Catholic Church, the, the Protestant Reformation is going to make so much more sense now. Okay, so you get into the Protestant Reformation and it, it starts in October 31st, 1517, and the man that's more responsible for the Protestant Reformation than any, anyone else is Martin Luther. Okay? He was a Catholic monk, born in 1483 and died in 1546. And like many people, he was just frustrated. And I'm sure some of us here that were listening to what was happening in Rome how the theology shifted and strayed away from the Orthodox faith, how the life of the church started to get a little bit complicated, how that legalistic system started to advance. I'm sure some of us here were frustrated just hearing it, right? So Martin Luther was like, that's enough. I'm done with all of this system that, that, that's like, that we're all having to live with in the West. So he says this, I'm just going to read to you a quote and this is going to summarize his mindset. 
I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I want to believe freely and to be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university, or pope. I'll confidently confess what appears to me to be true, whether it has been asserted by a Catholic or a heretic, whether it has been approved or reproved by a council. Right? So he's just done with the authority and the councils and the Pope saying this and that. And he's like, Look, what's truth is truth and how I interpret it is just the way I'm going to live. And what makes sense to me is what should matter, not what a Pope tells me or what a council tells me. Okay. Then again, you know, that's just his opinion. Somebody else comes and says their opinion and you have all these countless opinions. So let's get into some of the 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 qualities or characteristics of Protestantism. Okay? So again, this is all just historical data. We're going to talk about the facts, not to uh, denigrate the Protestant faith or anything, but just to talk about what they believe and what Martin Luther himself, historically speaking, was pushing for. So we can say Protestantism lives by five solas. Sola is basically the Latin word for soul or only. right? So five things that, that they live by as the only thing. Okay, so there are five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solas Christus, and Soli Dio Gloria. So, for example, when it came to authority, they said the sole thing that matters is the scriptures. The only thing the only authority is the scriptures. That makes sense? And then we're going to break down what each one of these mean. Okay? So, sola scriptura is the Latin for scripture only or scripture alone. Ironically, sola scriptura like shoots itself in the foot. <laughs> because it, it's... It's counterproductive. It defies what it teaches. So for a sola scriptura to say it alone is the only authority, it would have to confess in the scriptures that it alone is the sole authority. But in reality, it confesses the contrary. <laughs> because St. Paul says in the scriptures for us to hold on to the traditions. Furthermore, the scriptures were a product of tradition. And we know that they weren't really canonized until the end of the 4th century. So... It was tradition that was paving the church as it began. Okay, St. Paul says in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.17, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Okay? And, and what's interesting too is that the word tradition in Greek is paradosis. In cases where tradition relates to what what God wants us to hold on to, like what St. Paul is saying, to hold on to what the apostles have taught us. The version that was translated by Protestants, 
would say, hold on to the teachings because they don't want to bring that to light. They don't want to signify the importance of holding on to the tradition. So they'll translate paradoxes when it comes in a good light to teachings. But when it comes in a negative light, like the traditions of men and the scribes and the Pharisees, the word paradoxes will come and will be translated as traditions. So that whenever it's translated as traditions, it is spoken of negatively. Because there was an agenda here. The agenda was, I'm sick and tired of traditions. And rightfully so, I would be sick and tired of traditions too, if this is what was happening in Rome. But you can't throw it all out. Like what, what Martin Luther should have been pushing for is going back to orthodoxy, not starting a, a whole new religion. Okay? And, and even though it's a different denomination, you look at how a Protestant and a Catholic practices, and you, you might as well say it's a totally different religion. They're worshipping the same God, of course, and yes, they are both Christians. We're all Christians because we believe in the same basic tenets. But there are serious differences. Right? So the second one is sola fide, which is soul faith or faith alone. So they confess that what's necessary is only faith. Okay, so you believe. You believe and you're saved. That's why, like a Protestant will come and ask you this question, are you saved? And then they expect that if you believe, you're saved. I'm like, I, don't, I never know how to answer that. Like, like, like I, I, I know God saved me, and I'm working on it, and, and, and I believe that I'm, you know, I'm trying, but I mean, who's to say? Like, you ask Him. Like, I can't ask Him where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, so you could say God has saved me, that, that I'm saved by His grace. But for me to say... That's it, my salvation is locked in and I'm guaranteed to live in eternity with heaven just because I confess that Christ is Lord is nonsense. And, and, you know, Martin Luther was um, pushing to reject the epistle of James from the canon of the scriptures. Because in James it says we're not saved by faith alone. As a matter of fact, the only place where sola fide does occur in the scriptures, is whenever it points to the fact that we cannot be saved by sola fide. <laughs> so in, in James 2.24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In James 2.17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, so... We can't say we're just saved by faith alone. St. Paul preaches and he says, while I'm preaching, lest I myself be disqualified. And he recognizes that nothing is guaranteed. Everything is in God's grace and His mercy. All right. So, sola gratia literally means soul grace. Only grace or grace alone. Okay. Remember, Martin Luther is fighting against a legalistic system. He's tired of a system that sounds like Pelagius is running it. Remember, Pelagianism was this heresy that the church rejected in, in the, I think, the 
third ecumenical council where he, he taught that you have to work and earn salvation, right? The church said that's nonsense. Like We're saved by God's grace and we have to also work. There's a cooperation, right? Both go hand in hand. There's this orthodox concept of synergia and we're going to talk about that in the last uh, course of um, our sessions together in the spirituality, but synergia is cooperation with God, right? Martin Luther was tired of this legalistic system stressing works and works and works, so he thought it was like Pelagius. So he said, grace alone. You know, we're just saved by God's grace. And then, again, he didn't even want to accept James into the canon because he was tired of what was happening in the Church of Rome. St. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? Even though he says, it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, and we know we're saved by grace, but you've got to accept it and work. Work for that salvation. So number four, solus Christus means only Christ. Okay? And, and Martin Luther was tired of the, the clergy and this legalistic system in the church. So he said, forget the priests, for get all of this structure. I don't need to go to confession to confess to a priest, forget the sacraments. So all I need is to have my personal relationship with Christ. And that's, that's a dangerous concept when we stop there. And there, there is some truth to everything that Martin Luther was saying. But if we stop with only Christ and say, forget the sacraments, forget the priests, forget the body of the church, the people that are involved in our walk with Christ that help us grow and refine us, then we say, I don't need the church, I just need to be at home and pray and forget the people that bother me because the church is a bunch of drama and I don't want to deal with it. Okay? So, the fifth one is soli dia gloria, which literally means God alone is glorified, or glory is to God alone. Okay. And again, there is truth to this as well. But just because we only glorify God does not mean we, we don't venerate the icons. Does not mean we don't pray for St. Mary to help us does not mean we don't ask the saints to intercede on our behalf. Like, I don't know about you, like, I need all the help I can get. So when I'm praying, and, and I know God is hearing me, I ask His mother to throw in a good word on my behalf too. Right? Just like whenever I go to any one of you, and I know you're close to somebody, I might go to your friend that you're close to, it's like, hey, can you ask so-and-so to do a favor for me? And that's a part of the process. And God Himself commanded us to do that. He commanded us to remember the saints. We say in the beginning of the commemoration of the saints, as this, O Lord, is the command of your only begotten Son that we share in the commemoration of your saints. Okay, so we have this cloud of witnesses that we ought to use. Okay. There's also the Institutes from John Calvin, who was another monumental figure in the Protestant Reformation, which, which served to... Clarify the Protestant faith in more details. Okay, now I, I don't want to get into the Institutes, but 
you can kind of look at all of this as one big picture of Protestantism. Okay, and and I'm telling you, most Protestants, most Protestants, will disagree with the majority of what we said about what Martin Luther was pushing for. Okay, if if, if there were Protestants sitting here, they would like be offended by some of these things. But this is exactly what Martin Luther was pushing for. This is exactly what, what caused the Reformation. Whether they agree with it or not is a different story. That's why I say we cannot judge the person by what we're, we're studying here about the origin of this schism and, and how this denomination began. But we're talking about the facts and how this all started. And now you have like no structure. It went from like a monarchy where there's a very legalistic, rigorous system of like a structure within the church to total anarchy where there is nothing and so many denominations, over 30,000 different denominations of Protestantism. And it's, it's all over the place. Everybody's interpreting their Bible in their own way. There's no system of going back to what the church originally taught us and so on. Okay? So, any... Questions, comments. There are how many denominations? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, did I hear you right? Yeah, you heard me right. Over thirty thousand different denominations of Protestant denominations. Well, that's what happens whenever you, it's like everybody interpreting the Bible on their own. There's, there's no going back to the body of the church, the structure, the priests, the, the sacraments. There's no going back to the ecumenical councils. Like, remember what, what Martin Luther said in that quote. Like, um, forget about what, whether the Pope says this or the council says that. Like, I'm tired of it and this is how I interpret it. This is what matters to me. Okay? I, I still doubt Martin Luther really wanted uh, the... the the movement that he started to really look like this. I really doubt he wanted over 30,000 different denominations today. He was really trying to fix the issues that were there, but he was a little overzealous. Did you say that he did end up going back to orthodoxy? No, he was actually excommunicated from the Roman church. <laughs> he should have just wanted to go back to the orthodox church and say like, hey, everybody that's that, that doesn't agree with What's happening here, you got to go back to what the original roots are, right? But in 1520, he was excommunicated from Rome and, you know, just kind of picked up and the, the branch from the Roman church led into the Protestant Reformation. Okay. I just heard today Diana was talking to me and she told me about uh, some people uh, at the COC, they were uh, finding some kids, uh, telling them about God the Mother. What is oh, that? yeah. Did you, did you hear about that? Yeah, yeah. There's this verse in Revelations. There's this verse in Revelations that says something like that. And see, it, again, it goes back to like take one verse out of context. And then you can just take it and run with it. The classic example I always go back to is like you just see a simple verse like when Christ says, My Father is greater than I. And then you have like Jehovah's Witnesses. You have Arians that are still living today. And 
clearly, like you interpret that with, without the context of the church, you're going to lead yourself astray. That's why we say, my own interpretation does not form my understanding of the Bible. My own opinion should not be what I live by. My own opinion matters, but it should be shaped by what the fathers have taught us, what the church has handed down to us. Because those are the people that knew Christ. Right? I go back to this example where like if I gave a sermon and people are arguing about what I, what I really meant in the sermon, I mean, they could come and ask me like a year later, hey, there's a sermon that was recorded last year. What did you really mean? And I could settle the dispute. But if I was dead and people come like 10 years later and they're arguing over, everybody's going to have their own opinion of what I said. But imagine if Marina was still around and everybody has their own opinion. What sense would it make for them to conclude their opinion is really what matters without having going back to Marina and saying, hey, what did Abuna really mean? Because if they go back to Marina and ask her, what did he really mean? Her opinion trumps all their opinion altogether. She's lived with me. She knows me better than anybody else. And even if it's totally different than everything that they were thinking, like let's say they were arguing about one, two, three, and she comes and says, no, it's actually number four, <laughs> like not A, B, or C, it's D, then they still have no grounds to argue that. So when the apostles come and they tell us Christ meant this when he was talking about the Eucharist, the apostles come and they teach us that the, the bread and the wine aren't really a symbol. They're the body and the blood. And when you gather together, the only way to really have true worship is when it revolves around the Eucharist. Whenever there's a church body, there's a structure. When, when you have the fathers like St. Uh, Cyprian, who says, He who does not have the church as his mother cannot have God as his father. The fathers stressed the significance of this body in the church. Now, in the Protestant denominations, the church is more so like a matter of support groups. It doesn't revolve around the Eucharist. There is no liturgy. There is no sacrament. It's all symbolic. So that's their opinion. Why, why not go back to the apostles and ask them and see how the church interpreted those things and how they lived? So if you listen to the sermon that I said, and you don't go back to my wife and ask her, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Then the only thing we can conclude is you want to understand my sermon on your own terms. You don't want to go back and really find out the truth because the truth might have a different implication. The truth might tell you, yeah, he really means this. And you got to be like, oh, I guess, I guess if that's what he means, that I really got to do this and that. And, you know, he really meant that I have to live that way. So that has a bigger implication. Right? So that's why we always go back to the fathers of the church. Not one specific person to take like certain words as, as if they're infallible, but the mind of the church, the general consensus of the fathers, and that's what we live by. Okay. Any other questions? The difference between the Eastern and the Oriental Orthodox now? Um, okay. It's it's all. Yeah. 
you uh, you get it right. You're on. You're straight on point <laughs> because it it's essentially what it is. And you have Eastern Orthodox fathers that really understand that, and they'll acknowledge that we're one and the same. And you have some of them that are stuck on splitting hairs and looking back at the politics and stuff. And like I've had, I've had uh, <laughs> an an Eastern Orthodox priest call me a heretic. So you have ones that are like that, and you have ones that really understand we're exactly the same. And some of them that are praying and fighting day and night for the unity of the Orthodox churches. Is the same on our end? Like some yeah, yeah. I think so too. But I feel like there are much more attacks from their end than our end. We're not on the attacking end. Like, we're trying to explain that, like, we, were, we should never have been excommunicated. And we're trying to explain that all of the complications to, to further explain the faith only did more harm to our theology. Because the Eastern Orthodox Church really developed quite a bit. So that was a little harmful in, in the life of the church. So there was a grace, like I was telling you, that we were secluded by what happened with the rise of Islam, even though all the persecutions and, and all the damage that happened, like we were guarded from that sort of progression and complication to the faith. But yeah, it comes down to semantics, politics, and nonsense. The difference is the two natures and the one nature. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the bigger issue, they have so many internal struggles they they just they have internal fights within the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're, they're fighting within each other so much because of politics with Constantinople and the Russian Church and the Greeks that like. <laughs> so until they figure that out, they're not going to accept us and and work on that unity. Is that Greek a sister church? No, the sister churches are the Oriental Orthodox churches. So it's not the Greek, the Greek is not. Yeah. I thought we were in communion with the Antiochian yeah. church. No. No, I knew not the Greek, but I thought the Antiochian. But the Antiochian churches are like the most accepting of the Oriental churches. They speak of us as if they're one and the same, for the most part. Then you'll have some of the Russian, especially the Greek churches that are like, especially at Mount Athos. I was I was with um, Father Patrick Reardon, who's an Antiochian Orthodox priest from the Eastern Orthodox Church and he was saying the only way we're going to have communion between the Eastern Oriental Orthodox Church <laughs> you're going to laugh at this where he said you take the guy that Trump is trying to hire to build this wall between America and Mexico you take him and you put him in Mount Athos to build a wall around Mount Athos <laughs> so the monks there can just mind their own business and you get them out of the equation. And again, he's an Eastern Orthodox, one of the biggest scholars of the Eastern Orthodox Church today. So Father Patrick Reardon is huge. He, he's very well aware that there, these issues are the real reason why um, they're more so on the attacking end. They're not willing to really forget about the political issues of the past and just work at reconciliation. All 
the differences in rituals during the liturgies between all of these churches, whether Oriental or uh, the Eastern? Is it because of the language or is it because of the culture? Yeah, both language, culture, and you'll see that the Antiochian Orthodox Church is a little closer to ours because the proximity, geographically speaking, Rome was farther, so there's a little bit more of a difference. And because some of the sacraments liturgically, the, the development happened before the Islamic invasion and, and, and that geographical isolation, that there are more similarities as you go back to that time. So you'll have some things that are like almost exactly the same and some things that are totally different. Yeah, but it's cultural, language, things like that. Yeah. So they stress, they want to stress and preserve the distinction of the two natures in Christ. Because remember, they were offended by what Eutyches said. We want to stress the oneness of Christ because of the Nestorian heresy that we were trying to defend the faith against. Okay, and and both are important. You know, the Alexandrian Church, you know, yeah, the Alexandrian Church fought for the oneness more so than anybody else, and the oneness is just critical for our own personal salvation because if you separate the humanity from the divinity of Christ into two separate people then we ourselves would be separated from him so we ourselves would be removed from that union because he assumed us in his nature okay and we don't speak of him as if he's two separate natures whenever we look at the union we speak of him as one you know you have a body and a spirit they're two separate natures. The spirit is one nature. Spirit doesn't eat, sleep, drink. The body is a separate nature, right? But I don't separate you as a person. When I speak of you, I don't say your body is thirsty. I, I say Gigi's thirsty, yeah. right? So I don't, we can't speak of Christ with this emphasis and the distinction in the, to the extent that we almost like separate him. He's one. We don't confuse the two. We don't say like the divinity suffered, right? There's a distinction. We kind of stress that distinction where it's important, but we don't speak of it as, as it's the norm. We speak of him as one. Quick question about the Protestant. Uh, statistically speaking, um, why do they, like, a lot of people are tempted to be Protestants. Is, is it because it's the easiest of them all? Like the Protestants are number one Christians right now. They are more than the Orthodox or the Catholic in the whole world. Oh yeah, well, well, in the whole world is different. In America, absolutely. Yeah. In in America, Orthodoxy is less than one percent. Yeah. yeah, but you know, there's more of an appeal to Protestantism, um, and and they are so practical. They give you like there are so many. Yeah, there are so many good things about the Protestant faith. There, yeah, I there are plenty, That's and I think say that there should be no saints to pray for you. They pray for each other all the time. Like, there's and so many holes in the rational. Yeah. Ask for prayers. He, it's like no priests, but they. Yeah. They give a lot of. Yeah. They say pray for me. Pastors yeah. Yeah. And, and they heal, and uh, once yeah. they put their hands on the people, you are healed. And 
Yeah. So those things, yeah, th those things are all, you know, a part of the the holes and and all these different denominations. So some of them are 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 right. Some of them are wrong. Some of the teachings are okay. Some of them are are wrong. But I mean, they're very welcoming. They're loving. They're caring. Um, they 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 just uh, they they don't like what happened with Rome, and so they're really pushing well, to the opposite extreme. The scriptures very well, and they stress on the hymns and the songs a lot. Yeah, they're well funded also. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether yeah. it's politics. Do the Jews have to do with this having more than thirty? Oh, uh, I don't know. You know, if you uh, divide us, you will weaken us. So yeah. divide Christianity, it yeah. will be weak. Yeah, and and I feel like the divisions are and significant enough where we're not going to compromise because there are significant things that are not worth compromising. So for us, we would never agree with these solas. Right, so we're not going to say like, "Hey, let's meet in common grounds and and unite so that we could be stronger." Like it's going to take more effort. This is one of those things where the Orthodox Church is going to say, "We for us to unite, you got to come on our side," and that's it. And there's so many stories of that's happening. You pick up the book called "Becoming Orthodox." So this this whole Protestant Church as a whole, the whole church converted to Orthodoxy. And nowadays there are always rumors on Facebook and uh, I don't know whether it's only the Egyptians who wish for the unity for yeah. Protestants. But now we wish first for <laughs> yeah. the union of the Oriental and the Eastern yeah. Orthodox yeah. Church. Yeah. And the Catholic and Church as well. We're working on all different sides. And, and you know, you guys I'm sure have noticed efforts within the um, Pope Tawadros and, and, um, and the uh, Pope of Rome. Um, so there's efforts there. We just pray and and but, and. But based on the scriptures and the revelation, do you think it will get better or worse? And oh, we'll have more denominations. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be hopeful. Yeah, so we could only hope. Good, very good questions. We'll stand to pray.